0: We're dealing with nothing less than a system for inducing enlightenment.
1: If you're a human being, then you are on the spectrum of dealing with addiction, just like every other human being.
2: Only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, and bring the world
3: closer together. Welcome to Commune. I'm Jeff Krasno, and today we'll be exploring addiction and recovery we gather the wisdom of three remarkable experts on the topic, Gabor Mate, Russell Brand, and Tommy Rosen, whose insights will broaden our understanding of addiction and hopefully ignite self-reflection and inspire healing. So in our fast-paced, hyper-stimulated world, it's too easy to mistake a busy and agitated mind for happiness. We find ourselves entangled in the pursuit of external agents to assuage our internal discontents and our perceived deficiencies. We often look outside ourselves in seeking relief from the discomforts and uncertainties of life. We then become stuck in a perpetual cycle of craving and aversion which can show up as an addiction to substances like drugs and alcohol, but can also take on more insidious forms. I mean, be honest, how many of us are addicted to our work or our phones or shopping, sugar, seeking the approval of others, or even addictions to internal habits of mind like negative thinking or depression, anxiety or excitement? adrenaline, cortisol, dopamine, and other neurochemicals become our fix momentarily soothing the ache and the disconnection within. However, as our reliance on these stimuli deepens, we become trapped and addicted. We are too often chasing something out there, unable to rest or to be present. We begin today's excavation with the profound teachings of Gabor Mate, an esteemed physician and addiction expert. Dr. Mate's extensive research exposes the intricate connections between unresolved trauma, emotional pain, and addictive behaviors. He reveals how our early life experiences shape our brain chemistry, paving the way for a predisposition toward substance reliance or self-destructive patterns that can include unsuspecting habits like people pleasing ignoring our true feelings and hiding our true selves by addressing the underlying causes of addiction with compassion and with self-understanding dr mate offers us a profound path to healing and wholeness without further delay i give you dr Gabor Mate. So, if illness and disease exist on a
2: spectrum, yeah,
3: what is healing?
2: By the way, that spectrum is another reason not to be so mm, arrogant about calling some people normal and other abnormal, because as far as I can see, we're all on we're the spectrum. On the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so if The essence of trauma Is a disconnection from ourselves which it is A disconnection from aspects of ourselves Then healing again to look at word origins is comes from an anglo-saxon or german anglo-saxon word for wholeness so if trauma is disconnection and disease is the physiological manifestations of this connection then healing is becoming whole again which means but i shouldn't say rec- becoming whole again more accurately probably recognizing our wholeness. Hmm. you know um in addiction in addiction there's an interesting phrase uh recovery and again if you look at word meanings recovery means to find again they ask anybody who's recovered what did you find to say I found myself yeah. which means that that whole self was never lost it just got obscured and lost to our awareness so wholeness and healing is the recovery of the awareness of our wholeness
3: I've heard you say and I've read this as well is that everyone is dealing with some aspect of trauma. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: We are all somewhere on this spectrum and that we can be listing towards healing or listing potentially towards illness and disease. If you were to be able to give a message to people to empower them to give them agency, to every day wake up and move towards healing and away from disease, what would that message look like?
2: Just to change the language a bit, I cannot give anybody agency, (laughs) by definition. True. Okay. I can help them wake up to the potential of agency within themselves. And what I would say to people is that every instance of perceived helplessness and lack of agency on your part. Um, every moment of being carried away by emotions as if a flood had just carried you away. Every instance when something is a bit off and you notice that it is, now rather than dismissing it or judging yourself for it, you got curious about it. huh? Why did I react that way? Not, why did I react that way, which is a judgment. But Mm hmm, hmm, I wonder why I did react that way. I wonder, why did I feel helpless? I'm actually an adult human being. I'm not an infant anymore. So the sense of helplessness that I have. When I have an opinion that I'm afraid to express because I don't, I'm afraid people won't like me. Even when a medical doctor an expert tells me something, that doesn't feel right to me or that i have some questions about but i don't utter my questions or i don't state my objection what is holding me back that's the pathway towards agency so to me the pathway towards agency lies through this compassionate curiosity about one's responses and reactions to the world and one's the one's emotions just be curious about everything And that promotes agency in two ways, because first of all, the answers will begin to emerge. But secondly, you'll begin to notice who's the one asking the questions. (laughs) Well, that's to you that you don't even know existed. Mm. So to me, the path to agency lies through curiosity.
3: Hey, it's Jeff, and as an athlete, I've been told my entire life to make sure that I get enough electrolytes, but it's only recently that I have truly understood what electrolytes are and the many essential physiological functions that they fulfill. Okay, so you ready for Electrolytes 101? Here we go. When essential minerals like sodium, potassium, chloride, and magnesium dissolve in a fluid, they form electrolytes positive or negative ions needed to maintain vital bodily functions. For example, sodium ions are used by the brain to send electrical signals, hello, electrolytes, through your neurons in order to communicate with other neurons and the cells throughout your body. So electrolytes are key for brain health. Sodium also retains water and maintains proper hydration levels and fluid balance in your cells through a process called osmosis. Now calcium and potassium are needed for muscle contraction. They facilitate muscle fibers to slide together and move over each other as the muscle shortens and contracts. And magnesium is also required in this process so that the muscle fibers can relax after contraction. And magnesium is a total other beast. It plays a role in protein synthesis, sleep, and blood sugar balance and hundreds of other functions it's for all these reasons and more that i add element to my water element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with a thousand milligrams of sodium 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium and guess what no sugar element is sweetened with stevia a plant-based sugar substitute that won't spike glucose levels. A 20 ounce serving of many popular sports drinks that I'm sure you know, can contain 36 grams of sugar. It's absurd that those products are marketed as healthy when they contain almost as much sugar as a soda. Many listeners know that I still play competitive tennis. Now, before I started using Element, I was prone to fatigue and cramping during long matches due to the loss of sodium. No longer. I'm right there moving like a panther at the end of a grueling three-set match. So right now, Element is offering Commune listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets Free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com slash commune. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T, drinkelement.com slash commune. Element offers no questions around refunds, so... Try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a friend and they will give you your money back, no questions asked. You've got nothing to lose. So go to drinkelement.com slash commune. Can you elaborate a little bit on the scale of the societal problem as it relates to mental illness, depression, and addiction. Yeah.
2: Well, um, three weeks ahead of this conversation in the New York Times, um, there's a front page headline about the teenager who was on 10 different psychiatric medications, <laughs> 10, which is a trend in the United States. And literally millions of kids are being medicated for all kinds of conditions, including them being medicated with antipsychotics, not for psychotics, but to con- not not for psychosis, <laughs> but to control their behavior. This, in despite evidence that even in adults, those antipsychotics can have negative effects on the brain. So it's an uncontrolled experiment in fiddling with children's brains, and the number of children being diagnosed with ADHD and anxiety and depression is going up. Anguished articles in the New Yorker and the New York Times within the last few months about the rising tide of childhood suicides. Yeah As far as addiction is concerned um, Last year there were more than a hundred thousand overdoses deaths in the United States. I mean uh, More people died in one year of overdoses double them double the number that died in uh, the Vietnam Afghan and Iraq Wars put together This is in one year. Mm. So one can hardly overstate the scale of the crisis. The problem is, people are not looking at the systemic causes, psychiatry still focuses on the biology of the brain as being the culprit, not recognizing that the biology of the brain actually reflects an interaction with the environment. So that whether it's adult or children, we gotta look at the systemic causes that are driving people in those directions. We're not doing that.
3: Yeah, there's a proclivity just to prescribe or over administer yeah. like an SSRI. Yeah. It's just like, okay, well, we've done some analyses and it looks like the biochemistry of the brain needs to needs more serotonin or whatever. Well, and, you know, and, and as, simplify. Someone,
2: as, as someone who's taken SSRI and has benefited from it, yeah. I'm not gonna argue wholeheartedly against or wholesale against the, the judicious use of medications, but I can tell I can also tell you that the theory of lack of serotonin causing depression is complete bunk. There isn't any evidence for it. And so, right. yeah, I, w- I benefited for a while from my SSRI, but it's the same as if, you know, if you go to a party and you're kind of socially shy and, and, and you have a drink and all of a sudden you become the life of the party, That does that prove that your social anxiety was caused by a lack of bourbon in your brain, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so we can, you can't argue from the... Yeah the yeah. potential benefit of medications to causation. There's hmm. no correlation whatsoever.
3: Yeah. What does a trauma-informed society look like?
2: Well, from my perspective, from the the closest mm, mm, discipline, you know, for me, of course, is medicine. And the average medical student to this day the average medical student to this day does not receive a single lecture on psychic trauma and its multiple physiological and, and mental consequences. So they're like, they're working blind. It's, it's, it's astonishing. This is despite multiple decades of research and literally tens of thousands of papers. So a trauma-informed medical system would indicate that when a person comes in for say multiple sclerosis or depression, or ADHD, they'd be offered the appropriate treatment, whatever that may happen to be. But then a conversation would also ensue about what in your life may have led, what is the process in your life that may have led to this particular symptom or this particular constellation of symptoms that we call a disease. And the correlation between say addiction or ADHD or multiple sclerosis for that matter and trauma and stress could not have been more definitely established than it already has been in, in scientific research. And yet the average person who goes to a physician with any of these conditions is never asked about trauma, nor are they help to uh, heal the trauma. So that's medicine. The legal profession, oh my God. More, uh, the law, most people in our jails are traumatized people. Yeah, and and that's not even controversial and yet the jails punish the manifestations of trauma without really having you know they call it a correctional system but nothing gets corrected for most people the way people are treated their solitary the confinement the harsh conditions the punishments the lack of decent nutrition you know they're all designed almost to exacerbate rather than to heal the trauma so a trauma-informed correctional system would actually help people correct their, their life course. And where it's done, it's very effective, this is this isn't theory. It's poc- in pockets, it's done here or there, but it's generally not done in the system. And the average lawyer and judge and prosecutor understands nothing about trauma. They don't even know the concept for the most part. Yeah. A trauma-informed educational system? Boy, oh boy. If, 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 if teachers were trained in human development, in child development, and brain development, and if they understood that these dysfunctional childhood behaviors and learning difficulties are very often the outcomes of trauma, what a different educational system we could have. What, what if the educational system was designed to promote healthy emotional and brain development, rather than strictly the inculcation of a certain curriculum? if a political social system understood the implications of trauma and did its best to avoid or correct them the possibility for a humane society would be infinite Mm
3: -hmm. so it sounds as if across our judicial system our medical system our politics the way that we build our economy Mm -hmm. that we need a wholesale Reimagination of our systems and structures from a vantage point of upstream, but also through the lens of compassion. And this is something that you touch
2: deeply on in the book is the, is the topic of compassion. Well, uh, one of my teachers, A. Jalma, says that only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. I and mean, then people are so scared and they're so. Agitated, and they're so divided and they're so mm, hostile sometimes and so isolated that f- f- for them to wake up to the truth there needs to be a lot of compassion around that we offer one another and especially to those that we don't agree with mm. um, yeah so if there was compassion all around and and of course the interesting thing is Compassion is not only not strange to human nature, but is the very essence of it. Yeah. I mean, when do you feel better? When does anybody feel better when they grasp something aggressively and competitively and selfishly? I mean, even look at this grasping movement—it's a tension, it's a constriction, isn't it? As opposed to giving, you know, yeah. which is immediately expansive. When do you feel better, physiologically? Yeah. You know? You know, in other words, that's our nature. Yeah, giving is self-care. Yeah. In that sense,
3: yeah. 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 Hey, it's Jeff. Now, I always heard vitamin supplements are a waste of money as they just pass through your system. Expensive pee, right? Well, now I understand why and the reasons it's so hard to absorb large doses of certain nutrients through the pills, powders, and gummies at the store. Now, when you take these supplements or even consume foods, your digestive system must extract vitamins and minerals and, depending on the nutrient, convert them to a form your body Can use now some nutrients depend on proteins to transport them into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption now often these supplements contain such large quantities that your body doesn't have enough resources like transporter proteins to absorb the nutrients since your body can't store water soluble vitamins like c and the b family as well as minerals like magnesium zinc and selenium they wind up excreted and never reaching the cells where they are needed to support your immune system metabolism nervous system and so much more now i didn't know all of this when i started taking live on labs lipospheric vitamin c i just know that if schuyler was giving them to me they must be good Well, it turns out that Live On Labs understands the difficulty of high-dose nutrient absorption, and they became the first dietary supplement company to use liposomal encapsulation technology to enhance nutrient absorption. liposomes are double-layered spheres that Live On Labs uses to surround, protect, and transport water-soluble vitamins and minerals into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Liposomes are made of essential phospholipids, the same material that makes up your cells. So they easily pass into the cells and deliver the nutrients staying behind to fortify the cell membrane. Now the live on labs liposome encapsulated supplement line includes vitamin C, a B vitamin complex that contains pre-methylated folate, a magnesium specifically formulated for the brain, and the master antioxidant glutathione. And guess what? Only the ingredients necessary for maximum absorption. That means no sugar, and no fillers no colors no artificial flavors if you don't want to know what that tastes like and trust me you probably don't make sure to follow the instructions on the package Uh, right now live on Labs is offering commune listeners free sample two packs of all their liposome encapsulated supplements with any purchase this is a great way to try all six of their powerful supplements and get accustomed to their weird, unique, goo-like consistency. Just get yours at liveonlabs.com slash commune. This offer is only available through my link. You must go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Live on Labs has a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. So you have nothing to lose. Go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Okay, so if trauma is a disconnection from one's true self and addiction is a coping mechanism we develop to soothe ourselves from the pain of that disconnection, then healing is the reconnection with one's true self. It's an integration of all the fragmented parts of ourselves, a remembering of our disparate parts. So, how do we do that? Well, There's not just one way, and it doesn't happen in a straight line. What works for me might not work for you. So Gabor talks about the power of releasing resentment and cultivating compassion towards oneself and to others as powerful tools to add to your pantry of healing utensils. He also stresses the need to integrate a trauma-informed approach into all our social systems because they all play a vital role in preventing and healing trauma. Now Gabor goes deep on this topic and more in his course over at OneCommune.com aptly titled A Return to Wholeness. If you want to hear more from Gabor, I encourage you to check out that course. So in this next segment, you'll hear from Russell Brand, the celebrated comedian, actor and recovery advocate who recently celebrated 20 years clean from alcohol and heroin. Russell's insights weave together spirituality, introspection and social transformation. In his profound and occasionally profane exploration of the 12 steps, Russell reveals a paradigm shifting perspective on true liberation from addiction. A true recovery is not just abstinence from toxic substances, but is a more profound spiritual reconnection to something larger than yourself. In fact, addiction, as awful as it can be, can also be seen as a sign that you seek this greater connection.
0: Okay, without further delay, I give to you, Russell Brand. Thanks for uh, purchasing this course on 12-step recovery. Let me give you a bit of an overview of what you can anticipate and expect, although anticipation and expectation are some of the things you're probably gonna have to deal with. They're probably the very kind of things that mean you have to acquire courses like this because you're living in a constant state of expectation. 12-step recovery for me is nothing less than a system for altering my consciousness, for creating a state of awakening. The thing that's ingenious about it is it was developed and evolved to the most obvious forms of addiction such as alcoholism and addiction if you're a crackhead a smackhead an alcoholic it's a pretty obvious problem the social medical criminal judicial problems that you'll encounter make it clear to you that your life is gone wildly awry astray that you are dealing with complexity conundrum and calamity near consistently and constantly but whether or not you're a person in recovery right now working the 12 steps around behaviors or drugs or alcohol or a person that's curious about how you could evolve a new perspective, this course is gonna give you the tools and explain the methods in a manner and a language that you will understand. Although this is like a um, quite colloquial, chatty and casual dialectic between me and you right now, we're dealing with nothing less than the system for inducing enlightenment. I don't want that to sound overly grandiose, but I do want you to know that what the 12 steps does is it takes you from a state of unawareness to a state of awareness a state of unconsciousness to a state of consciousness in my own life this is how it hit me the way that the 12 steps hits most people that work it I was in a rock-bottom state of absolute desperation. A heroin addict, a crack addict, an alcoholic, every aspect of my behaviour was problematic. It was clear that I needed intervention. A curious thing that I'll mention at this early stage of the journey that we're on together is that what I was looking for curiously, and this is not something that I'd have been able to appreciate it if you would have plainly told me what I was looking for was an awakening, a spiritual connection. Seems like an odd way to look for a spiritual awakening and connection, sitting around in doorways, doing smack, hitting up the martel bottle, pipe hitting, boozing, whoring, seems like an odd way to look for God, to look for oneness, and indeed it is. But the reason the 12 steps works And the reason that i believe it was discovered in relation to substance misuse and alcohol misuse is because when we form an attachment to an object whether that's a physical object or a kind of a neurological compound suspended in our own mind meaning i suppose that my relationship with my work is an object my relationship with my wife can become an object in my mind if that relationship is not conscious, aware and functional, it has the potential to cause me pain. And often, and this is a curious thing, which I believe is where the universality of the 12 steps comes into its own, is I nominate external things to be salvation, to redeem me to make me feel better about myself. Now that is uh, that's clear and obvious when we're dealing with drugs and alcohol. So it's no coincidence that the 12 steps was devised and conceived around alcohol because when a person's got an attachment to drugs and alcohol, the consequences are obvious. The behaviours are observable. It's a clear and evident problem. The way that this program functions mechanically is that instead of regarding a problem in your life as a sort of a sign of deterioration or a wound, it becomes a point of initiation and inauguration. It's a kind of, we make a trans a mental translation rather than seeing a problem as like a a deficit or a wound. We see it instead as an invitation. How that functions for me is as soon as I'm like, Agitated, discontent, irritated, or afraid. I don't see that as like something erroneous or something that's gone wrong with me. I see it as a signal, something that I need to read. So, like, when you're excessively drinking or you're excessively taking drugs or you're looking at a lot of porn or you're spending a lot of money, the fuel behind it is a craving. A yearning, a desire to acquire, a, a forging of an attachment to external phenomena to ameliorate an inner malady, it's like and the relationship between this, the identification of this problem and a spiritual experience is uh, like almost a total one. It can be difficult to see alcoholism or endless spending or obsessive watching as pornography as a hankering after a spiritual experience. But in a very obvious way, what you're trying to do is make yourself feel better. And that is a spiritual issue. The function of spirituality is to amend the way that you feel, is to address a kind of um, a disalignment, a disjunct between your inner and outer lives. So I Once you've admitted, I'm not happy in my marriage, I'm not happy in my work, or whatever it is, once you've admitted, this is a problem for me, that's an opportunity for an inhalation and a moment of reflection, I've got a problem, it's... But a lot of people won't do that. Have you noticed that in your own life? A lot of people are like, no, I'm very happy. I'm, really, like, I'm happy in this relationship. I'm happy in this job. I'm happy drinking. I'm happy continually getting in fights. Well, the, the 12 steps that, as a point of initiation does require an honest appraisal. It, without that, obviously, you can't proceed or progress because you're not open to the possibility of change. See, the the very simple thing is that this is a program of change. Whilst it does involve some quite um, potentially esoteric ideas about consciousness and dare I say it, God, it, it is underwritten by the possibility that, by the optimistic possibility that your situation, that your life, that your problems can change. Once you've admitted you've got a problem, there is an opportunity for change. So whether you want to improve your understanding of 12-step recovery for application in obvious and already identified problematic areas, such as drugs or alcohol, sex addiction, porn addiction, gambling, spending, excessive eating, not eating enough, or, and this is crucial, just a vague sense of unfulfillment, uh, a general sense of disconnection or discontentment, then I believe that this course is gonna be helpful for you. Step one, conventionally put, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction and that our life had become unmanageable is your honest entry point into a 12-step program. Given that our remit and the way that we're approaching our work is that we want to be able to apply this program the way that I do across every aspect of our life, that could be a severe addiction issue. You could be watching this thinking, I'm drinking too much. My drinking is ruining my life. I need to change it. Or it could be something more vague and difficult to identify. I don't want to be in relationships that make me feel bad about myself. I don't want to be working in a job that's making me feel inferior. But whatever it is that you're working on, the candid and honest admission that you have a problem and that your life is unmanageable as a result of that problem is our entry point. That honest acknowledgement, mentally in my mind at least accompanied by the sound of a record scratching off, a point of arrest, I don't want to proceed any further down this path. When I interpreted the 12 steps I changed it from a rather wordy, articulate and brilliant appraisal of powerlessness and unmanageability to the more succinct and perhaps vulgar, are you fucked? if you're watching this video if you've subscribed to this if you find yourself in a position where you're unhappy and lost this is the step one moment the moment of i'm i can't cope with this anymore i don't want to continue down this path anymore so whatever it is you're dealing with there is a a further requirement here and that requirement is for specificity I reckon that the reason that the 12-step program was initially formulated around alcohol and then drugs was that when there is a clear and obvious object like alcohol and alcoholism, it becomes, it's easy to diagnose and it's easy to, not easy because it's like incredibly complex and painful, agonizing and difficult and a lot of people can't ever, ever do it, but at least it is clear that the, that alcohol is the thing that needs to be removed from your life, that, that your problems are clustering around your misuse of drink. When I think about my own, like, my own step one around crack, heroin, and alcohol, firstly, actually, it seemed like a bloody difficult thing to accept, like, when people said, The reason that you're getting in these the reason that you're getting in trouble in relationships, the reason that you don't like yourself, the reason you've got low self-esteem and that you're continually getting in trouble with the police and that nothing's ever working out for you, is because you're drinking and you're taking drugs. Are you willing to one day at a time stop drinking and taking drugs? For a long time, the answer was no. I wasn't willing to see that as the problem. I wasn't willing to embark on a journey of change. Having done that, and having seen the success of it, I'm now willing, in pretty much eventually almost any situation, to take a 12 step journey. Because, you know, as soon as you've removed alcohol and drugs from your life, if that's the problem you're dealing with, you are confronted with the myriad other problems in your life that are required to change. And these things are no longer external, they're internal issues. So what we have to do when taking the step one is identify what it is you want to change. I've worked step one around drugs and alcohol. I've admitted, right, yeah, my drug and alcohol problem is I'm powerless over it. I can't control it. Once I start, I can't stop. The consequences of me drinking and taking drugs are creating unmanageability, this word unmanageability can be understood as, like, once I start drinking and taking drugs, I don't know where I'm going to end up. I don't know what the consequences are going to be. I don't know when I'm going to be able to resume control of my life again. It becomes a kind of helter skelter. Like, when applying it to something more insidious, less obvious, like I'm powerless over my use of the phone and my life has become unmanageable, It's kind of, look, there's no doubt that it's more subtle, but I'm still looking at the phone when I don't want to look at the phone, and it's still making me feel not good about myself. I don't feel good at myself if I'm staring at my phone instead of talking to my children. I don't feel good about myself if I'm like unconsciously and um, sort of kind of, somehow my volition is being usurped by, a bloody device that i've paid for that doesn't that doesn't feel good that's an, another thing that's very beautiful about the 12 steps is this learning to recognize my own intuition and my own feelings as being somehow valid the point that i'm feeling unhappy or dissatisfied it's not something that i need to suppress or ignore or get over it's the beginning of letting go of something it's the beginning of changing something i am working this program at the moment around phone use. I'm working it around the way that I behave in professional environments. I'm working this program around the way that I treat my wife. So the first thing I have to do is acknowledge that it's a problem and that my life is unmanageable, that in regard to that particular issue, I'm fucked. So at this point in working the course, you do have to clearly identify what it is that you wanna change. That's not to say that you can't, like me, work it across multiple issues. That's what I do. I'm right now working it across multiple issues. But you do need to be specific. You do need to say, I want to change my relationship with food. I want to change the way I talk to my partner. I want to change my relationship with my sexuality or my sexual behavior. You do at this point need to identify it. It's not enough to say my whole life's a mess. I'm generally unhappy because you're not. That doesn't give you a sufficient purchase for the scaling of this problem. You need to identify, okay, what I'm dealing with is this.
3: Hey, it's Jeff, and I'm excited to tell you about one of our partners here on the podcast. Vivo Barefoot is a natural health lifestyle company on a mission to reconnect people to the natural world and to their innate potential from the ground up person by person foot by foot created by galahad and asher clark two cousins from a long line of cobblers vivo barefoot draws upon three simple barefoot design principles wide thin and flexible these design principles lead to optimal foot health and natural movement Vivo Barefoot makes their footwear from the best materials nature has to offer, allowing your feet to move, to breathe, and to perform with every step. A million years of engineering, also known as evolution, has yielded the perfect blueprint for standing, walking, and running. Your feet. When left to their own devices, they can cope with everything from walking and running to jumping and dancing, but cram them in a modern shoe and you cut off their natural potential. Now I've been wearing Magna Forest boots for hiking the trails here in California. I love the feeling of the connection to the ground and their airiness while still providing me with the basic protections. I also get a ton of comments on the unique and attractive design. What's more, Vivo Barefoot is a certified B Corp. Vivo Barefoot is giving feet the freedom to move as mother nature intended. The best piece of technology ever to be put into a shoe is the human foot. So you can get 15% off your first Vivo Barefoot order at vivobarefoot.com and use the code VIVOCommune15 at checkout. That's vivobarefoot.com and use the code VIVOCommune15 at checkout. Reclaim your natural potential. The journey starts with your feet.
0: You know, just to give you an idea of the scope that it can be worked in, you know, for me initially it was crack and heroin. I was willing to admit that it was a problem. I had no choice but to admit it was a problem and that my life had become unmanageable. And now I'm working it around my use of technology, negative thinking, you know, like it can become much subtler and it is equally successful. It's obviously harder to work an abstinence programme around something as involuntary as negative thinking. But what I can do is recognise, oh, I'm habitually engaged in negative projection and anxiety. That's a problem. I want to change it. Now, once I've done that, you know, then I can, if I choose to, embark on the rest of the steps. I can accept the possibility of change. I can ask for help. I can inventory. I can then observe the patterns that uh, uh, recur in these situations. I can see if anyone else has been harmed as a result. I can stay aware. I can recognize that a component of change is going to be prayer and meditation, uh, a changing of my perspective through spiritual practices, and that the end result of all of this is to become of service, to become of use, to ultimately change my perspective from a kind of infatuation with self-fulfillment to a willingness to be of service to others. Accompanying this course, you have some worksheets and materials that you can use uh, along with this video. I mean, if looking at my face on a laptop or a phone isn't sufficient to deliver you to salvation, I begin to wonder what the hell the problem is. But there are also some written materials. I just want to talk you through how they work. So firstly, we identify what we want to change. For the purposes of this exercise, my example is like my use of tech. Like even, I can be even more specific than that, looking at my phone in the morning, first thing when I wake up. The reason I'm I'm using that, even though it sort of seems a bit minor and trivial, is that I'm going to operate on the assumption that if you're (laughs) sitting there withdrawing from heroin or on your way to score more, that for a start, you will require additional medical, psychiatric and therapeutic support, but also somehow... The more subtle the problem, the more the efficacy of the program is demonstrated. So like in my case, I wanna change my phone use. I wanna not look at it first thing in the morning. I don't want my phone to be given the job of making me feel better about who I am. I recognize that's an inappropriate function to give a, a piece of technical equipment. Next question is, what pain or fear do I associate with change in this area? Now, that sort of might seem like rather grand for such a trivial route of inquiry, but the pain and fear that I associate with the pain and fear that I associate with like not looking at my phone first thing in the morning is that I'm kind of confronted with the general and vague sense of anxiety that I wake up with every day that I try to negate with some external distraction if I look at my phone maybe someone will have sent me a text message telling me that I'm fantastic Russell you're terrific you can now rest assured go back to bed turn over bury your face back in the pillow you're absolutely fine there's nothing about you you need to alter. but in reality I know that there'll be things on my phone that annoy me work emails and suddenly i'm not facing the day i'm not embarking on my day thinking about how can i be useful how can i help others how can i be a better dad today i'm sort of already bogged down in the in minutiae so the pain and fear that i associate with change is that if i wake up in the morning and i've not got my phone then i've got no excuse to not meditate for example that i i'm going to be confronted with this sort of vast, open ice of every day. Like, I like to anchor my day to something minute and quotidian. There's only so much horizon I can bear. So that's the fear that I associate with change in this area. What pleasure am I getting out of not changing? The pleasure I get out of not changing, I guess like with all forms of addiction, and this is the reason that addiction is a perfect metaphor for a material attachment, is that, the. With an addictive behavior, it's like this is a sort of an experiment that could be run in a lab with a rat, you reward, like I'm rewarded about one in every five times that I engage in an addictive behavior. It was the same with drugs, it was the same with sex, same with pornography. Once in a while, it's fantastic, it's terrific. But the rest of the time, it's pretty dismal and disappointing as all forms of a material attachment ultimately will be. There is no way that I can make myself feel spiritually fulfilled or even comforted by looking at a phone or smoking crack, not long-term, eventually it will lead me to a point of disappointment and dismay because these objects are not capable of addressing an inner malady what pleasure am i getting out of not changing the pleasure i'm getting out of not changing is once in a while it works for me once in a while someone will text me and say you've got this job or you're terrific it's never enough and in a way the problem even with the positive outcome is it It engages me for longer in a behavior that isn't ultimately beneficial. So I'd be better off to, like, as soon as I consciously engage with that behavior and I'm willing to change it, the possibility of real change, of real improvement begins. What will it cost me if this doesn't change is the next question. Like, and again, you know, if you're dealing with heroin or you're dealing with paying sex workers and like when you're in a a marriage or you're dealing with like looking furtively at porn continually, it's kind of more obvious to sort of identify what it's gonna cost you. It's gonna cost you your self-esteem. It's gonna cost you uh, uh, your relationship with your partner. But like when it's like looking at the phone, well, you know, it's less obvious, but it's still evident. What it cost me is my peace of mind. It cost me my autonomy. It cost me freedom but i'm designating a, an object as a kind of uh, as a stimulant for happiness i suppose that's why the addiction metaphor is a good one stimulus response as a means for living this is the way that consumerism and materialism operate this is why i think addiction is rife because we are continually taught that we can fulfill ourselves, improve ourselves, advance ourselves with the acquisition of an external material object, or through the validation and approval of other people. That, for me, has the same sort of paradigm shape as, here is some heroin, I've taken the heroin, here is some alcohol, I've taken that alcohol, here is pornography, I've used the pornography. Wherever you are on the scale, if you're using an external object as a uh, tool to ameliorate in a malady, you're engaged in addiction. Any behaviour that you're engaged in that you want to change and when you try to change it or try to stop it, you can't, I think can rightly be referred to as addiction. To keep it specific, again, what benefits can I have? What benefits could I expect from changing my phone use? Again, if you're talking about stopping drinking alcohol, the benefits are obvious. I'm going to save money. I'm going to feel healthier. I'm going to lose weight. I'm not going to feel that constant despair of alcoholism, vomiting and belching my way for every day. When it's something sort of seemingly minor, but like phone use, what benefits will I get? Well, you know, the truth is that I have begun to change that behaviour. For one week, I stopped charging my phone in my bedroom. I charge it downstairs. I don't look at it first thing in the morning. And what happens is, like, I feel... I feel... In a sense, it's with a subtler form of behavioral change, like not using my phone to soothe myself in the morning, the benefit I feel is not immediately obvious. The thing that I felt most immediately was a bit inconvenienced and a bit put out by not having my phone there. But two or three days in, I started to feel a kind of relief. None of us feel good about how we've been inveigled and hypnotized by technology. and Having for me as a person that works a 12-step program, recognizing that I can alter my behavior around something as seemingly minor as that, it's fulfilling, there's a relief in it. So that one of the benefits are that in the morning now when I wake up, I'm thinking about dealing with the people I live with and love, not dealing with a fucking telephone. So for our purposes today, What we want is a clear understanding of what it is we're willing to change. Before we fill out our worksheets, which you know, I'll be doing in my own little life, you'll be doing over there in your world, before we embark on that, let's take a moment to consider and to commit to what it is we want to change. That could be something as obvious and severe as substance misuse, or something as subtle and seemingly trivial as technological attachment, such as I've been describing. But whatever it is, let's envisage it, commit to it, and be very clear that the reason we're working the 12 steps around this particular issue is we acknowledge it's a problem. At this point, the step one juncture, that's all that's required of you. This is a problem, I want to change it. Just an honest acknowledgement of that. So take a moment, wherever you are in the world, not if you're operating heavy machinery, and that's not the ideal situation to conduct this course in, I may say. If you're driving a bus or a tube train or an aircraft, complete that, then undertake this course. Take a moment to acknowledge, what is it I wanna change? I mean, I might say, don't, step one, don't fly a Boeing 747 while doing a. Self-help video, that's like a problem you can start working on in your life. So take a moment to acknowledge what it is you wanna to change, to make a commitment to it. So for me, as I've said, I don't wanna be dependent on my phone for approval anymore. I don't want my phone to be anything other, in fact, than a tool for communication. So now, right, from this moment on, far more when i filled in this worksheet, whenever I engage in that behavior, I will recognize Wow. Because, you know, like I may not immediately change because this isn't as severe and pronounced as heroin and people relapse on drugs all the time. But once you've acknowledged it's a problem, once you've made that mental commitment, then you can never again undertake that behavior with the same kind of cavalier innocence. It's been clocked. You've grasped yourself up. You've acknowledged this is a problem. That's what step one is. It's the first step on the 12-step journey. This is a problem. I want to change it.
3: Hey, it's Jeff, and if you're a regular listener to this show, well, you know that I explore a wide variety of topics related to health. And right now, I am experimenting with a bunch of different techniques and approaches to optimize my own well being. And part of this tinkering involves what I put into my body and what I don't. And this is why I love being a member of Thrive Market, they have a vast selection of organic foods olive and coconut oils teas and coffees supplements and so much more i just got a thrive delivery the other day that addresses my morning protocol that includes my favorite greens powder and some mct oil and it's delivered right to my door via carbon neutral shipping so i have a special offer to commune listeners if you join thrive market today at thrivemarket.com commune then you'll get $80 in free groceries, 80 bucks. So like you, I support companies who are mission-based and committed to sustainable business practices. Thrive is a certified B Corp and take it from me, it's not easy to get that certification. I had to do it once. Now, when you join as a member, Thrive also donates a membership to a family in need. This is so important because so many people are living in food deserts right now in which they are unable to access nutritious food. Thrive has donated $4.5 million in healthy groceries. delivering healthy food to neighborhoods in need directly impacts the chronic disease epidemic that we are facing and that I talk about so much on this show. So can your regular grocery store do that? (laughs) Well, now it can when you go to thrivemarket.com slash commune. If you join Thrive Market today, Mm -hmm. you'll get $80 in free groceries. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash commune. Like Kabor, Russell understands that addiction isn't solely about the substance or behavior itself. It's about the underlying pain and trauma that drive those addictive behaviors and keep us stuck in old habits of mind. Step one is about bravely admitting and surrendering to the fact that we're powerless over that pain. This concept of acknowledging our limitations and embracing vulnerability lays the foundation recovery russell emphasizes the importance of exploring our spiritual beliefs our values and our connection to something greater than ourselves by doing so we open ourselves to a profound journey of self-discovery paving the way for genuine transformation russell covers the rest of the 12 steps in his course on commune called recovery so be sure to head over there to onecommune.com recovery to watch the full course with a free trial of commune membership. The path to wholeness, to recovery, can look a lot of different ways. And this next segment from Tommy Rosen will give you a powerful tool that you can start using immediately in your life. Now, Tommy's course called Break Out of the Addiction Frequency, offers a set of effective protocols to help you change your habits. As he faced his own struggles with anxiety and a perpetual search for external solutions, Tommy discovered the profound impact of breathwork and self-awareness techniques for transcending addiction patterns. Through his story, I hope you'll be inspired to explore the power of inner stillness, of breath awareness, and of mindful practices as catalysts to help you liberate yourself from your addiction. Here's my friend and neighbor, Tommy Rosen.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Incredibly excited that you're here. So in case you're not aware, my name is Tommy Rosen, and I'm a person in long-term recovery from addiction. Um, and that will not be my claim to fame when I leave this planet. Uh, When I leave this planet, hopefully the claim to fame will be this is a person who learned how to thrive in life as a result of recovery, as a result of the expansion of consciousness and awareness, and particularly as a result of learning how to break out of this thing called the frequency of addiction, the addiction frequency, which we're talking about in today's workshop. Before we begin, Let's bring the sacred into this moment by chanting a mantra to begin. The mantra is Ong Namo Gurudev Namo, Ong Namo Ong Namo. That means I'm bowing to the consciousness underneath everything. I'm recognizing my connection to everything by doing this. So Ong Namo Gurudev Namo. I'm bowing to the teachers and the teachings that carry us from darkness into light. So if you can get behind that, let's chant this together three times. Rub the palms together at the heart center. Sit up nice and tall. Bring the thumbs against the chest. Allow the eyes to close. And first all together, let's take a deep inhale. and a full exhale, and inhale to begin. Om namo. Take a deep inhale. Pause this breath. Simply hold the breath. Keep the heart lifted. And gently exhale. And welcome. The addiction frequency. My intention in this first hour is to explain that concept and to go through two breath practices together. One of them is going to be, well, it's, it's been the greatest gift of my life. Learning this particular breath practice has been the greatest single gift of my life. Helped me to unlock healing, Help me to relieve my body of chronic pain and to help me to move beyond emotional pain and suffering as well basically this breath practice this first one that we're going to do helped me to move beyond my own tension pattern my own stress pattern so we'll come to that the second breath that i'm going to share with you in this first hour well it's it's more of a process than it is just a breath this is a very very powerful process it's one of the most powerful that i know of and i'm gonna grab your attention with it right up front. Um, We're going to do this first breath and then we're going to do that breath after. I want you to have an experience, a direct experience of what it means to be, to break out of that addiction frequency. So this is a process that will give you that direct experience. We'll come to that in a moment. First, my story is the story of a, a young boy who does not know himself, who has not taken the time to get to know himself, who is very happy-go-lucky, wakes up on the right side of bed, super um, hyperactive, a lot of movement, mentally and physically, a lot of movement in my childhood, in my, in my story, You might say that I never sat still. And underneath all of that, looking back, I can tell you that there was a great sense of anxiety. Yes, I was a happy kid. Yes, I was engaged in the world and very frenetic and and moving all the time and engaged in sports and, 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 and somebody who you would have enjoyed being with. And underneath all of that was this sense of anxiety, a feeling that there was something wrong my way for dealing with that discomfort, that dis-ease, that distance from ease, my way of dealing with it was to reach out to something that could relieve me of that anxiety. And the, the somethings would change over the years. But as a child, the first thing that I really gravitated toward was sugar. Sugar was, for me, the real gateway drug it opened up this rhythm that I'm about to tell you about. The rhythm was this, feel anxiety, reach out, in this case for sugar, feel a sense of relief, we call that getting high. So I would get high and then sometime later crash and return to anxiety. Reach out, get high, crash, return to anxiety. So the return to anxiety is, at that point in time, that's a return to myself. Because all I know of myself is this core feeling of anxiety. I don't know myself as a calm person. You might say baseline Tommy at this point is just an anxious kid. So I don't even need to tell you about any drug experience I've ever had or any other form of addiction. The rhythm is always the same. Anxiety, reach out, get high, crash, return. The problem with that is one never gets past that cycle. It's like a hamster wheel that you're on for the rest of your life until you're not. So creating this rhythm in my life as a child was setting myself up for a whopping, whopping case of addiction, drug addiction, alcoholism, and a whole bunch of other forms of addiction. Now you might be watching this and saying, well, you know, I don't really identify as somebody who, who uh, has struggled with addiction or I'm not a person in recovery. And I'd say this to you. If you're a human being, then you are on the spectrum of dealing with addiction just like every other human being. It's just that for you, the, the manifestation of addiction might be more subtle. Okay, so my story of reaching out, get high, crash, and return to anxiety carried forward into my adolescent years, into my young adult years. And where it ended up was abject addiction, uh, the horror and the, and the suffering of broken promises to myself and not being able to see things through or to realize any of the thoughts and dreams that I had for myself. Okay. Here's the really interesting part of my story, I think. I reach a bottom, and a bottom is nothing more than when you're willing to tell the truth. I reach the bottom, and the truth for me was, I don't know how to live my life well. I don't know how to live life without the assistance of drugs and alcohol. And so I'm just in this pattern, I don't know how to break it, And I don't even know what I would be if I did break that pattern. So I reached that bottom, and the natural uh, thing that comes out of reaching a a moment where you're ready to tell the truth is you have to ask for help. And I did it, and I had just enough willingness, just a little, a door of willingness opened up for me to be able to uh, receive the direction and the love and the care of people who wanted to see me First, just to get sober, just to remove drugs and alcohol from my life. So I did that. And I'm one of those people that ended up working the 12 steps and the 12 steps delivered on their promise. And the promise is I could wake up one day and no longer be thinking about using drugs and alcohol, which for someone who was so invested in drugs and alcohol for so many years, that's an incredible transformation And that transformation took place for me. Now, over the first 10 years of my recovery, well, a lot of wonderful things happened. I became a healthy person in my body once again. You might say I was returned to mental sanity uh, on a lot of levels. But in my life and in my relationships, there was still something going on. I didn't know what to call it, and neither did anybody else but there was still a sense of dis-ease in my life. I still felt like I was stuck. There was an orientation to the outside world where I was looking for the outside world to solve my inside world problem. So I was still engaged in this rhythm. Anxiety, reach out, get high, crash, return to anxiety. I still hadn't cracked the code. I didn't know at the time, but now I know. I was stuck in the addiction frequency. What ended up happening for me is what I think happens to many people who are stuck in the addiction frequency but don't realize it. My body started to show some signs that something was wrong. First it was migraine headaches and then it was lower back pain. Incredible lower back pain. The kind of lower back pain where you are pretty much crippled for a period of days, you can't move. And the day would come for me, nine years, 12 years, in that period of time into my recovery, when I could no longer move in this physical body without pain. And I truly had become crippled. Yes, I could move, but not well. The addiction frequency had me fully in its grip, even though I hadn't used any drugs or alcohol for many, many years. But that anxiety and the core condition of disconnection from my own self continued and it left me physically corrupted. It's a difficult place to be when you're in recovery and you've reached a bottom, an emotional bottom in recovery. So what happened for me was I got to meet a very wise teacher And I was in so much pain when I arrived at his office. I sat down and he was opposite me on a mat. And he had a turban on and white clothes, (laughs) long white beard, glasses, right out of central casting. He was like the guru, right? And his name was Guru Prem, in fact. And I sat across from him and he said to me this, Tommy, I know how you're gonna die these are his first words (laughs) and I said okay Guru Prem how am I going to die and he said you're going to die on an exhale no one had ever said that to me before and I thought about it and in fact I knew that I was going to die on an exhale as we all are and he said that's right and you came in on an inhale like everybody else he said from this moment on The more conscious attention you pay to the breath will indicate the depth of your healing and the length to which you can go in this life. The more conscious attention you pay to breath will indicate the depth of your healing and how far you can go in this life. And I doubted the statement at the time. Could that be true? If the breath was that important, why isn't everybody paying attention to it the way he's describing and the way he's asking me to? And haven't I been breathing? I mean, here I am, 35 years old, and I've been breathing, I'm alive. What does the breath have to do with my lower back pain? What does the breath have to do with addiction? What does the breath have to do with my, my struggle in my entire life? The breath had everything to do with it. And so I started to do what this man told me to do. In 90 days, my back pain went away what presented itself to me like a gift was a vision of a life where i could truly live beyond the frequency of addiction beyond this thing where i could truly be free one day at a time i got into a body that became my favorite toy that all the joy and the the bliss and everything i was going to feel coming through this machinery i started to feel incredibly good
3: if you wanna try out the breathwork practices that help Tommy finally recover from his addictions, you can access his full course with a 14-day free commune trial that will also give you access to Gabor's and Russell's courses. And Tommy shares a series of powerful breathwork techniques that I highly recommend that you try. So the practices and insights we explored today are not only useful for people addicted to substances, but they really extend to each and every one of us. Addiction exists across a spectrum that encompasses anything that we crave or avoid, like alcohol, sugar, processed snacks, carbs, external validation, sadness, anxiety, worry, grief. And although today's segments didn't explicitly touch on the Buddha's teaching of, on attachment, and aversion, they encompassed themes that align with many of those teachings by addressing underlying pain and trauma and societal influence. And by cultivating awareness, compassion, and connection, we can learn to observe cravings and aversions without acting on them. And One of my favorite sayings I've heard in 12-step meetings reflects that idea and it goes, Don't just do something, sit there. (laughs) It's a gentle reminder to resist the urge to immediately react and seek solutions when faced with habitual behavior or thoughts. And this is at the heart of all paths of recovery. We all fall somewhere on the spectrum of addiction. So I'll share some key takeaways that we can all leverage in order to heal. Number one, surrender to your powerlessness over your habits. Number two, address root causes like childhood trauma. Number three, explore a purpose greater than yourself. Number four, develop a breathwork and meditation practice. And number five, cultivate compassion toward yourself and others. So if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss an episode. Leave a comment and let us know your thoughts and don't forget to share our content with others who might benefit from this valuable information. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno and I'm here for you. Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, You'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash DRG.